I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my 60-second sermon on the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that marriage is the most important and most intimate relationship that we can have because it is the relationship above all others in which we can practice Jesus' command to love. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. February of 2011, we've uh, completed a month of this year and are working on our second one as the year flies by. Uh, this is also Super Bowl Sunday, but the game doesn't start until uh, 6.30 or so, so I should have uh, plenty of time to get through this message and uh, you'll still have time to get home and uh, get out whatever you want to get out to prepare for the game. So our lesson for this morning is the 62nd part in our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in the 26th verse of the 7th chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it says this, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her but the sinner shall be trapped by her. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So Lord, give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for listening to this message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. And our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. In our last few lessons, we have been looking at the thinking of Solomon, the son of David, who was the king of Israel after David, and the wisest man who ever lived because of his application to God for the gift of wisdom, which God granted Solomon in 1 Kings 3, 11 and 12. Then God said to Solomon, because you have asked this thing, that is wisdom, and have not asked long life for yourself, 
nor ask riches for yourself, nor ask the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And not only was Solomon wise, but Solomon was accomplished beyond anyone before him and wealthy beyond measure. Solomon tells us, tells us in Ecclesiastes 2, 8 through 10, I amass silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the hearts of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me, in all this my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And Solomon's crowning achievement was the magnificent temple that he built for the worship of God. Solomon employed the greatest craftsmen available at the time, used the most precious wood available at the time as a structure for the temple, and then overlaid the entire temple with pure gold. Words fail to describe the magnificence of Solomon's temple, and then, after the temple was completed, Solomon dedicated it to God. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 22-29 tells us, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel, and spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you have promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, that they walk before me, you as you have walked before me. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day, toward the place of which you said, My name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. Now Solomon was a man that knew God. Solomon's father David taught Solomon the necessity of having God on his side. So when Solomon became king, he offered a great offering to get God's attention. Solomon then pleased God by asking for the most important attribute any man can have, that being wisdom. And in his wisdom, Solomon knew that which God wanted of him because God told Solomon face to face. 1 Kings 9, 1 through 5 records, And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time 
as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my heart and my eyes will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. So based upon Solomon's knowledge of history and Solomon's experiences with God, Solomon knew the key to maintaining the kingdom of Israel. King Saul lost Israel because he failed to follow God's instructions as to what to do with the spoils of a battle that God allowed him to win. Then Saul, knowing that God was displeased with him, went to a fortune teller and a worshiper of idols to call Samuel up from the dead so that Saul could ask Samuel's spirit in defiance of the scripture, how he, Saul, should conduct a particular battle. But since Saul disobeyed God by calling on spirits and idols, Saul and his sons died in the battle. And Saul's successor, Solomon's father, King David, was no peach himself. Even though David had seven wives with whom to satisfy his lust, and even more concubines if his wives were not sufficient, David committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his own soldiers, while that soldier was on the battlefield fighting a war that David initiated. Then David commanded that the soldier who was Bathsheba's husband be murdered on the battlefield so that David could have the soldier's wife. Coveting and then stealing a man's wife to commit adultery with her and then murdering the man are about as sinful a set of acts as one person could commit. But this heinous sinfulness notwithstanding, God still did not forsake David as God forsook Saul. God called David a man after my own heart because through all the punishment that David received because of his sin, David remained steadfast in his devotion to God and never turned to the worship of idols. Those the opposite examples of Saul and David taught Solomon that if he wanted to maintain his status in the kingdom, he should apply his heart to the worship of God and reject the worship of idols at all costs. The example of David makes it clear that committing sin did not condemn those that lived in Bible days, and our New Testament makes it clear that committing sin does not condemn us now. The Apostle Paul tells us, as he related the case to Titus, his son in the ministry, in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, for we ourselves were also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of love of, and the love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And Paul makes it clear that our eternal life does not depend upon our personal righteousness, but on our justification, meaning are being declared not guilty because Jesus Christ has paid our penalty and thus we no longer owe it. Our justification, like the wisdom that Solomon received and like the forgiveness that David received, is a grace gift from God. And God actually appeared visually to Solomon a second time so that Solomon would not be able to have a mistaken idea about the required response that anyone that receives a grace gift from God should make. God told Solomon directly in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, But if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And I pray that this wisdom from God is not lost on us because God gives us a grace gift just as he gave a grace gift to Solomon. God tells us in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And the hymnologist tells us, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And so just as Saul David and Solomon were all warned to maintain their exclusive allegiance to the one true God of the Bible in heaven in opposition to any other object of worship. We are warned to maintain our exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, there are some maintenance items that God gives us so that we can maintain our allegiance to Jesus because although God has told us to worship him exclusively, God knows that we will have other relationships. In fact, God plans for us to have an intimate relationship with one other person. Genesis 2, 18, 21 through 24 tells us, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in his place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then Jesus reinforces this through the pen of the apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 25 and 28. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The two, husband and wife, become one and ought to love one another sacrificially, even as Christ loves the church and gave himself on the cross of Calvary. And it is my contention that when Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, that the focus of this commandment was and is marriage. Just think with me for a minute. Love as Jesus practiced it means to give oneself sacrificially to another. But in order for us to love one another sacrificially, we have to have a certain level of interaction. No one in this church can love me sacrificially except my wife simply because we have limited contact. We see each other once per week for a few hours, and we may see one another on another occasion during the week if one of us happens to go into the hospital, but our relationships with one another can by no means be called intimate. The love that we have for one another is to some degree trivial, and that's not a slam on either one of us. That just happens to be the fact of the way that we live our lives. But on the other hand, in Jesus's relationship with his disciples, they walked together continually for three and a half years. They ate together, they traveled together, and they dealt with one another's lives together. They shared their lives intimately by the function of their proximity. So to exercise love, you have to have proximity. Without a certain level of interaction, you certainly cannot exercise love for a person. Yes, you may have an emotional attachment to someone that you do not see or communicate with regularly. You may be very fond of that person, but you, you can simply not exercise love because love is sacrificial and you cannot make a sacrifice for, with, for someone with whom you do not share proximity. And as Jesus was going to the cross, he told his disciples, in John 16, 7, 13 through 15, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. However, when he, the helper, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. The helper will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
All things that the uh, that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that the Helper will take of mine and declare it to you. So Jesus' proximity to his disciples after his resurrection is not to be physical, but spiritual. And as Jesus is prepared to leave the physical world, Jesus instructed his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through 8, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for God truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus gave his disciples the Holy Spirit as a permanent helper. And as the B portion of Romans 5, 5 tells us, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Jesus maintains his proximity to his church by the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he gave to us. And every Christian believer has the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and 3 tells us, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 and 20, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So the ministry of the Holy Spirit gives Jesus proximity to us, allows Jesus to lead us into all truth, and gives us the power that we need to be Jesus' witnesses to a hostile world. My point is that love requires proximity, even for Jesus Christ, and his spirit allows us to be as close to Jesus as he was to his disciples. Jesus' Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, even as Jesus guided his disciples when he was here physically. Love requires proximity. And there's no point in talking about loving someone with whom you do not share a sufficient amount of experiences to have a personal relationship. Now, I suppose that it is possible that we might develop a church relationships as Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35 records. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessions, possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And that is proximity. The church in the book of Acts 
had all things in common. Now there may be such a church in such a church in the world today, but I am not aware of it. I am aware, however, of relationships with which we are familiar in our current society in which the people involved have intimate proximity, the people involved have all things in common, and the people involved are specifically commanded by the scripture to love one another even as Jesus loves us. And these relationships in our society are the perfect parallel to the relationship between Jesus and his disciples, even to the point of being referred to as a parallel in the scriptures. These relationships are marital relationships. I have already read Ephesians 5.25, which says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And listen to how Paul describes church leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, he says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5, One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And according to the scripture, faithfulness and longevity in marriage while successfully raising reverend children is the test of the ability to be a church leader. Timothy, Paul teaches us in Timothy that without objective family success, a man is not eligible to lead a church organization. That is because the marital relationship is the perfect parallel to the relationship that Jesus had with his disciples. So if we flunk marriage and raising reverend children, we flunk preparation for church leadership 101. And the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, makes it clear that our marital selection is crucial to our Christian success, as he says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial, which is an idol God? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And the wise Solomon communicated this same truth differently to us in our text in Ecclesiastes 7.26, when he says, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. But ironically, Solomon's wisdom on this issue 
did not serve him well. First Kings 11, 1 through 13 says, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts away after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Then Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he likewise did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So the Lord became angry with Solomon because Solomon's heart had turned from the Lord God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but Solomon did not keep what the Lord had commanded. Can you believe it? After the direct warning of God, after talking to God face to face twice, obtaining wisdom, offering great sacrifices, building a magnificent temple for the worship of the Most High God, the wise Solomon was seduced to the dark side because he failed to heed his own advice. Solomon's wives' hearts were snares and nets, and their hands were fetters, and Solomon did not recognize that his great wisdom did not make him immune to the laws of God. From a spiritual perspective, one of the most important choices that anyone can make after accepting Jesus Christ as Savior is that of a Christian spouse. Marriage is the most important and the most intimate relationship that we can have because it is the relationship above all others in which we can practice Jesus's command given to us in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I talked to a fellow that was a player, a carouser, and a man that ran the streets. But he married a Christian girl, according to his testimony, because he wanted a wife that he could count on to be at home, not out running the streets like he was. And the Christian girl that he married maintained her Christianity even as he never practiced any. She bore his children, kept his home, and was there for him, even when he staggered in drunk from being out all night. But as he testified, time passed. The kids grew up, moved out of the house, and started families of their own. 
but his wife created a tradition that the kids brought their families by the house on Sunday morning to have breakfast before going to church. And usually, after having been out late Saturday night partying, he was in bed asleep on Sunday morning while they were having breakfast. Now, one Sunday morning, he came home especially late, or maybe it was early. It was about 9 a.m., and he had been out all night. And as he was coming in, he saw his kids' cars in the driveway. He went into his house ready to swell up and jump bad, thinking that there might be a confrontation about him coming home so late. But his wife and kids greeted him with smiles and said, Good morning, Dad. His wife poured him a cup of coffee and fixed him a plate of eggs, bacon, and grits and asked if he wanted pancakes or toast. He sat down at the table, and he and his family shared a wonderful breakfast and a good conversation. Finally, his wife said that it was time for them to go and that he should go up and have a good nap. And everyone kissed him as they left to go to church. He went upstairs and got into the bed, but he couldn't sleep. He thought about how his wife and family greeted him, and he decided that he had to see what they were teaching at that church that would make them act so nice to someone that treated them the way he did. He told me that as he entered the church, he heard the preacher read John 3.16 and explain how Jesus loves us all, although we are all sinners. And the preacher said that it is our job as Christians to forgive one another and love one another as Jesus loved us and gave himself on the cross of Calvary. Jesus allowed those sinful men to break his body and shed his blood so that even their sins, as well as our sins, though they be many, might all be forgiven. He told me that he thought about the forgiveness of his wife and family that morning, that he decided that this Jesus that his family came to church to listen to the preacher talk about had to be real because of the Christian way his wife had treated him for years and trained his children to do so as well. So as the preacher opened the doors of the church, he walked down the aisle and gave his life to Christ. A few months later, he had a stroke, and not long after that, we buried him. Some wives are like Solomon's wives. Their hearts are snares and nets and their hands are fettered. But other wives, like this wife, listen to the teaching of Peter, who tells us in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And the fear to which Peter refers is not the fear of the husband, but the fear of the Lord, of which Proverbs 9 and 10 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And we should have the understanding that Jesus Christ so loved us that he gave himself for us by his sacrifice on the cross, not after we straightened up, but as Romans 5 and 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that why we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And if Christ sacrifices himself for us while we were yet sinners, we ought be able to sacrifice ourselves at the very least for the ones that we promise to love, our spouses. We ought to be afraid not to. And if we love our spouses, Jesus tells us in John 13 and 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson and for your word. And we thank you that you have given us a relationship in which we can work on the craft that you showed us when you came down from heaven and showed us your great sacrificial love by leading those 12 men for three and a half years doing nothing but good, but then dying on the old rugged cross that our sins, though they be many, might be forgiven. And we ask you this morning that you will give us the mind to emulate your example and to give ourselves for one another especially for those with whom we share proximity, with whom we live in the house, with whom we have a chance to actually show love. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the power of your Holy Spirit that might instruct us to do that which we ought to do as we emulate your example to the one that we have promised to love. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.